Hey guys, and welcome to this edition of the Pioneering Today's podcast. Today, we are going to be talking about one of my favorite subjects, and that is home food preservation. And not only are we going to be talking about different methods of home food preservation, but we're going to be diving in to give you some criteria that we use here in our homestead that will help you choose what home food preservation method to use based upon the crop or the produce, the item that you have harvested, or you might have got from the local farmer's market, CSA, or even just the grocery store produce section. But how we go about determining based on what that food is, the time that we have available, and then how we use that food later. So I'm going to lay down some criteria for you. And not just that, but I've got a special guest here for you today. And we've got a special freebie that goes along with today's episode. Okay, are you ready for this? To get your hands on the freebie, because it's one thing to listen to people talk about things, right? But when you hear them talking about it, especially when it's things in the kitchen, you're like, I need that recipe. Or how long are you dehydrating that? Or what exactly are you putting in there? Those types of things. It's really handy to have them printed out or to have an actual resource, not recess, resource that you can go to so that you when you're ready to do it that you have those step-by-step instructions or the amounts that type of thing handy so I got you covered for today because we're going to be diving into some really fun stuff so you can go to melissaknorris.com slash 149 because this is episode number 149 and in the resource section you'll see a button there that says click to get the freebie click that Pop in your email and your name, and it'll come straight to your inbox. And I want to thank you so much for joining me here on the podcast. If you're a new listener, welcome. If you're a returning listener, welcome back, too. My name is Melissa K. Norris. I'm the author of The Made From Scratch Life, the book Handmade, the host of this Pioneering Today podcast, and, of course, the website melissaknorris.com. And this is where we teach families how to grow preserve and cook their own food using old-fashioned skill sets and wisdom to create a natural, self-sufficient home with or without your full-on homestead. And right before we dive into today's episode, because there's a lot of good stuff there, I just want to let you know I so appreciate you spending your listening time with me. I am a self-proclaimed podcast junkie. I love podcasts. I listen to them when I'm cleaning, when I'm weeding in the garden, especially when I have to be driving. I listen to a podcast at least every day. And I want to make sure that I'm delivering to you guys what it is you need and what you want from the podcast. So if you have suggestions or ideas or things you want to know more about, or perhaps different formats, things that you like best, maybe some guests that you'd like to have back on or topics covered. This is your show just as much as it is mine. So you can shoot me an email. You can message me on Facebook, Instagram, in the comments, because as you know, every single podcast episode has a full blog post that goes with it. You can let me know in the comments there. Or simply email me, melissa at melissaknorris.com. Or you can even put it in the reviews if you're listening to this on a podcast app. You can even put that in the reviews because I always check those too. Alrighty, without further ado, let's get to today's episode. 
I hope you guys are just as inspired as I was to try some new recipes out, new ways of preserving things, and that you went and got your freebie with all of the resources in order to do all of that, which is at, again, melissakianoris.com slash 149. Well, today's episode is very special because I am bringing back Carolyn Thomas from thehomesteadingfamily.com, and we are going to be sharing some of our favorite ways to preserve the harvest because at the time of this recording, we are just entering the peak and the beginning of the summer vegetable garden and fruit production harvest really coming on strong. And when that happens, it can feel overwhelming, and it's usually, and the heat of summer is starting, and when it's really hot out, a lot of times we're looking for a quick or easy way to preserve our food and not necessarily wanting to drag out the canner. So I thought it would be really fun to just bring you virtually via the podcast and radio show here into mine and Carolyn's kitchens, and we're just going to start talking about the different ways that we preserve foods, how we choose those methods, and sometimes we choose multiple methods for the same food, and then our favorite ways to use those foods, because sometimes I will have readers and listeners of the show email me or leave a comment and say, I really need some inspiration on ways to prepare all of this wonderful food that we've preserved, but how do I go about really turning that into meals and making sure we're using that food to feed our families? So that's what we're going to be diving in today. So Carolyn, welcome back to the Pioneering Today podcast. Thank you. It is so great to get to be here with you guys again today. And this time of year is always so, I don't know, you have this moment where you're looking at the garden. If you're growing your vegetables or your produce and you're like, wow, it's growing, it's growing and you're getting so excited. And then all of a sudden you start seeing that produce come on and realize, wait a second, I have to preserve all of this. And you get that moment of panic almost like, wow, I've got a lot of work to do. (laughs) Yes, I completely agree. And that is happening on our homestead right now. In fact, I had a whole bunch of abundance of kale that I needed to do something because I have this thing. I think this is probably true of most gardeners and modern homesteaders is we hate to let any of it go to waste. It's something that was ingrained in me as a child. I mean, my parents like, well, you need to clean your plate. There are hungry people out there. And so I just can't abide. Like it really, it's this thing. Like I hate to let anything go to waste. And so, yeah, you're looking at everything coming on. You're like, okay, I need to get on this. So One of the things, we had Carolyn on on a previous episode, so we'll have in today's show notes if you've missed anything or you want to get some links and resources and things that we're talking about or you want to read this at a later date, all of the podcast episodes are written out for you in full articles. And so you can go to the show notes and grab that at melissaknorris.com. You just click on that podcast button and they're all listed in chronological order. So you'll be able to find that. And Carolyn came on just a few episodes back, and we were really talking about fermenting your food as a wonderful, healthy way to actually prepare your food, and also from a food preservation standpoint. And so today, I thought it would be really fun if we're going to kind of go over the main ways to preserve your food and kind of what each of us feel is the pros and cons of each method. So I think one of the main methods that most people are familiar with or kind of turn to 
is probably canning. Do you think so too, Carolyn? Yeah, I would definitely agree with it. That's kind of written into our cultural code that you know, food preservation equals canning. And so, yeah, we feel like we have to lug out that canner every time we've got some food to preserve. Yeah, and canning, both of us put up a lot of food via canning of the harvest Mm -hmm. throughout the year. So we'll cover that, but canning definitely has its pros and its cons. And we're going to talk about dehydrating and fermenting. I think those are kind of the three main ways that people preserve food. And we won't really get into the freezer. I think most people are familiar with how to use a freezer for preserving their food. And here, of course, we're sitting in old fashioned. So I like the other methods because they're not being reliant on electricity and having that freezer plugged in all the time. Plus the freezer space can be very limiting when you're trying to preserve a year's worth of food. So back to the canning, what are your pros and cons do you feel when it comes to the canning? You know, we do. We love canning in our house. We do a lot of it. And some of the things that we really like about it is that for one, it usually turns out a really familiar product. It's what we're used to using. We go to the grocery store, we buy a can of food. And when you're doing home canning, a lot of times your food turns out like that. So we have this cultural familiarity with our canned food, which makes it a lot easier for people to consume. You don't need to develop new tastes in order to enjoy your canned food. So I really like that. And another thing that I really see is a huge benefit for canned food is that you can make meals that are just ready to eat. You heat them and you go. And that is really amazingly simple when you need some convenience food on hand to have those just sitting on the shelf and ready to go. Yeah, I agree that I think canning is for me is really the ultimate batching when it comes to doing (laughs) meal prep because You know, and the same thing. And then when it's when we're really busy out or in the middle of winter, of course, those foods aren't available from my garden or locally. But I can go and pull out two or three jars, you know, sometimes four, depending on what it is I'm making. And all I have to do is pop it open, mix it together and heat. And, you know, supper can be on the table in like 10 or 15 minutes. So that is definitely a pro. And for me, too, with the other forms, especially when it comes to dehydration, But we are on a private well, and a lot Mm -hmm. of times, more so in the winter, I have to say, than necessarily in the summer, though sometimes in the summer, but our electricity will go out. And the problem with you're on a private well, we don't have any solar backup at the moment. So when the power goes out, I lose my running water. Now, we do have backup and emergency water stores and that, but typically if the power goes out, of course, unexpectedly, if there's not a big snowstorm or, you know, a big wind storm has been in the forecast, then the canned food is ready to go. I don't have to worry about having extra liquid to make anything because I'm not having, you know, to rehydrate it or really add. And usually, especially if it's like soups or stews or something, I always have canned up bone broth so I can add. And if I do need extra liquid. So for me, that's definitely a pro with the canning is Mm -hmm. I don't have to take those extra steps with water, but there can be some drawbacks. So do you want to address any when you look at the canning and you think of kind of a con as compared to some of the other methods? Right. Yeah. Well, I think for canning, one of the biggest ones that hits me is the time it takes up front, especially if you're doing pressure canning. By the time you get something into the jars and then get that pressure canner up to pressure, can it for the full amount of time and then let it cool back down. You really have quite a bit of time investment that happens right up front. 
And that's one of the big drawbacks. Of course, this time of year, we're also thinking about heat, heating up the kitchen. But there's ways to work around that. I can outside almost year-round to try to keep the heat out of the kitchen space. But it definitely, if you don't have a spot to can outside, it adds a lot of heat to the house if you have big batches to do. And then, of course, you have equipment investment, the canner, the pressure canner, and then all the jars and the lids. You really have to use those standardized pieces of equipment there. And for some people, that's really prohibitive, that initial investment in getting set up to can. So those are kind of the big cons for me on the canning side. Yeah, it definitely, in fact, if you didn't get a chance to listen to last week's episode, which is number 148, I actually talk about setting up an outdoor kitchen for the summertime, trying to house cool, and I do canning outside as well. And interestingly, I prefer to pressure can. I think that pressure canning is faster, and maybe because the majority of the canning that I'm doing in the summertime with fresh produce, like green beans, I do the raw pack method. So I just pick the beans, rinse them, string them, snap them, throw them in the jars, put my boiling water on top and put them in the pressure canner. But when I'm doing fruit with the water bath canner, like I just had almost 30 pounds of cherries and got the majority of all those processed in two days. But that upfront which is really true that you said that upfront time investment, I spent probably two hours and that includes prepping, you know, cherries, you're going to have to sit and pit and take the stems off. So some (laughs) food has a little bit longer prep time involved, but then, you know, to make the jam and the pie filling and to get that water bath canner filled up, which I actually use my pressure canner without the pressure canner lid to water bath in so that I only have to use one pot and my pressure canner because it's the all American 21 and a half quart is taller than the little water bath canner that I have. And so when I'm doing quarts, I always use my pressure canner and I just use a flat cookie sheet on top as a lid because you do have to use a lid that's not your pressure canner lid if you're using it as a water bath. And I can get more in it. I can actually fit more quarts in my big all-American canner, even water bath, than I can the other one. But I prefer the pressure canner. I feel like it's a lot faster than waiting for that full water bath, you know, because it's got all that liquid that has to cover your jars by one to two inches. I feel like the pressure canner is faster. Because I'm doing a lot of raw pack vegetables with it. Which decreases all the time of the cleanup of the other pots in the kitchen too, which is great. I love that too. We love the raw pack in our house wherever we can. So I'm kind of with you on the pressure canner that in some ways that is a lot simpler, a lot more convenient than actually going through the water bath process. Yes. And there's something about when you take those jars out and you hear them start pinging, it's just like music to your ears. I mean, I can hundreds and hundreds of jars every year and I have been for decades. But when you hear that ping, it's like this thrill and satisfaction all in one. I just, I love it. Absolutely. I know exactly what you mean by that. And then the other side of that is pulling those jars off the shelf and having something ready to go. We do large amounts of pie filling every year. And when I get some pie crusts in the freezer, we'll make a big batch of pie crusts and freeze the pie dough. And then you get those jars on the shelf. We can whip up a cherry pie in five minutes and the seven-year-olds in my house can do it because it's just so simple. All you have to do is open and dump. You just 
absolutely love the convenience of the canned food on the other side. Yeah, I completely agree. Let's talk about some of your favorite recipes. And let's do one that's water bathed and then one that's also pressure canned. Kind of if you have to pick your favorite or your go-to and then the ways that you use that. And of course, if you're doing pie filling, yes, making a pie is going to be one that we go to. But when it comes to canning. I asked my kids that this morning. What is their favorite thing that we pull off the shelf? And of course, everybody had a different opinion there, but one that came up regularly was canned peaches. When we can peaches in the water bath canner, everybody just loves those. And I think who doesn't love peaches any time of year? But then in the middle of winter, when you can open a canned peach and it just smells like summer, oh, That is such a wonderful thing. And then you can make up quick cobblers. You can do so many great things or just eat it plain. So we really like that one. And I think for me, one of the things that I like the most pressure canned is meat of any sort. And again, that's just because you're doing all your work up front. It's like in the summertime, in the fall, when you're doing all that pressure canning, you're actually just preparing your meals. You're just doing it in one big batch all ahead of time. So when you can open up a jar of meat that you have pressure canned, and be ready to dump that and make a stew or a sandwich filling or anything like that. I love that. I think to me, that's really adding to the convenience of my life, as well as having all those great stored foods. When you have meat on the shelf, you really feel like you're prepared for anything. You know, anything can happen and I'm good to go. Yeah, I agree. And one of my favorites is actually when we're lucky and my husband gets venison. I love to take that canned venison and heat that up and then use the broth that it just naturally makes when it's pressure canning and make a quick gravy. And then you've got the venison and then you've got the gravy to serve over things. That's one of my favorite really quick, like, oh goodness, what are we having for dinner tonight? I didn't plan ahead and we need Uh to eat in like 15 minutes. Right? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that's a great way to go. Yeah, I agree. And I think when it comes to the fruit, I have to say one of our favorites is having strawberry jam. And it may be because Mm -hmm. strawberry jam is just one of our favorite things. And my husband's grandma actually used to make up huge batches of strawberry jam. And then every year at Christmas, grandma would bring this big box of homemade pickles and home canned strawberry jam and popcorn balls. And that was like everybody's favorite box to get. And that was before I was making a lot of jam ourselves. And so we would try and ration out for the whole year grandma's jam, but you didn't really get enough to ration it out. So it had like this special spot and we only, you know, would try to savor it and make it last. So Now, I can up all of our own strawberry jam and had for years, so we don't have to necessarily ration out, but it still has like that special place in our heart, and of course, you know, making sandwiches or having on biscuits, and then I even like to take jam, I'll do it with fruit butter, kind of any of those fruit preserves, and use it as a filling between cakes, especially chocolate, because strawberry and chocolate, cherry and chocolate, raspberry and chocolate, they just go (laughs) well together, and then it's a really quick one. And for me, I think with pressure canning, I do definitely love to have meat, but I also probably home can tomato sauce, just because it's so versatile. So I'll can up the tomato sauce and then turn that into pizza sauce, pasta sauce, add it to chili or soup or stew for an extra flavor or thickening. So I'm probably going to go, and I do pressure can my tomato sauce, just it's so fast. And like I said, I can put way more in my pressure canner and I just kind of prefer to use that one than the big boiling pot of water. So I'm going to go with tomato sauce on that one. 
Yeah, that's a good one. And you know, if you have tomato sauce and meat in the pantry on your jars, you really have meals all ready to go. Whatever you want, you're ready to go. <laughs> yes, definitely. So though, as we said, some of the cons with canning is definitely the heat and having the time. And so where you are really pressed for time, sometimes we don't have that time investment in order to can everything there. And I did talk about in our previous episode, when you're coming up with your preserving plan, which was episode number 148, I talked about some different ways that you can kind of get around that. And that's freezing your fruits and your berries. And I will even freeze my tomatoes until I can get to them later when I know like the green beans, you can't freeze them and then thaw them and can them. I mean, they're just going to kind of be mush. So those need to be taken care of right when they're coming on. So there is some definite kind of tricks to using your time, but you're like, okay, I just don't have time to can. It's too hot. I don't have the stuff to set up an outdoor canning kitchen. That's where dehydrating and fermenting for me really shine in the heat of summer. So let's dive into dehydrating and then we'll save fermenting for the last. So for dehydrating, do you have some kind of pros and cons when you're choosing that method for preserving the food? I do. I definitely do because there are very specific foods that we tend to dehydrate. And so a lot of times when I'm trying to decide what I'm going to do with each bit of produce that's coming in, I want to think ahead to what I want to use it for and to make sure I have all of my uses covered so I don't find myself running to the grocery store because I didn't think of something that I wanted to use tomatoes for or fruit for or something like that. So some of the pros for dehydrating that we find is that you take something that is so filled with moisture that it's heavy and it's bulky and you dehydrate out a majority of that moisture to leave it very light and very small, which means packable in my family, which means if you want trail food, you want travel snacks, you want anything that's light and easy to keep with you. And that really becomes where dehydrating shines in our family. Anything that you want to keep with you, you can generally keep dehydrated fruits and vegetables. They become shelf stable. So they're easy to keep a little snack in your purse, in your diaper bag, on the go. They're really easy to grab and go. So I really like that. But it also is really easy to store because of that. So when you have your pantry shelf, and I know a lot of us don't have huge pantries or huge root cellars or different places to store large amounts of food, but we still want a good amount of food storage. And that's another place that dehydrating really shines. You can get a lot of dehydrated food into a very small space that rehydrates up pretty bulky. Yeah. You know what I think too, one of the other things that I really like about the dehydrating is it is very fast when it comes to the prep work. Now, depending mm -hmm. upon depending upon the food that you're choosing to preserve, it can take a long time to dehydrate. So I guess that would kind of be a pro and a con. I feel like the prep work up front to get food into the dehydrator is really fast compared to the prep that goes in towards canning. But you are limited to the size of the trays that you have for your dehydrator, of course. And there's many options where you can buy extra trays or get a larger dehydrator, but then you are kind of, you know, stuck for the amount of time. And cherries for me are probably one of the ones that take the longest to dehydrate. So that can be a con. If you've got 30 pounds of cherries, <laughs> you're not going to be able to 
to hydrate all of them because you're going to have to be letting that first round go and then bring in the rest. So that would be a little bit of a con. But I think for me, where dehydrating really shines is when it comes to greens, because greens really aren't something that you're going to be able to preserve via canning. I mean, spinach and kale and lettuce and all of those items, those are not canning candidates, but they do wonderfully in the dehydrator. And so I feel like it's kind of one of the, and I've never tried to ferment greens. That Maybe that's a thing and I don't know about it. <laughs> but I, I, have, I wouldn't generally recommend it actually. <laughs> yeah. And so for me, that's one of the things that I love about the dehydrator is can take some of those foods that I don't really have another way of preserving them. And then I'm able to preserve them to use them throughout the year. I think that's probably my biggest pro when it comes to dehydrating. Yeah, I would agree with that. And again, something like those greens, because we dehydrate a lot of greens, we make green powder, our own, you know, super green powder out of them. And it takes these bulky, big, giant, big, bulky (laughs) greens, you know, that would just take baskets and baskets in the kitchen. And it shrinks them down to almost nothing once you get them powdered. It just makes storage so much easier. Yes, it definitely does. And then herbs too. I love to dehydrate my herbs because I use, you know, herbs in cooking. I use herbs sometimes medicinally, depending on what the and it really does give you that storage capability. Like you said, you can take so much and it just becomes so small. And when it's in that powdered form, depending on what the herb is, you get that intensified flavor. So think about garlic powder and onion powder. You can take just a small amount and it brings so much flavor to a dish. So I think that that is definitely a pro when it comes to dehydrating. And one of our favorite things to dehydrate is my kids love kale chips. Mm-hmm. And I really like kale chips and it's a great snack food. And a lot of times I'll do them in the oven, but right now it's really hot out. And so I can do so much more bulk. I can dehydrate up a whole bunch and then just have that snack food available for them too. And you kind of said that prior is snacking and portability wise is so great with your dehydrating. So I guess I went and I just said what my favorite, (laughs) my definite favorite thing to probably dehydrate right now is the kale chips because I can get my kids to eat those without a fuss. And I love to snack on them too. Yeah, those are delicious. And I love how you can put your other flavorings on them too. You know, you add that garlic powder that you did and oh, it just makes them pop. So I like those. When I asked my kids this morning what their favorite dehydrator stuff was, they had a whole list of them. One of them is this great little snack we make where we just slice up bananas and we dip them in slightly melted peanut butter and then roll them in coconut powder and then dehydrate Ooh. those. and you can get rid of the candy store. The kids don't even miss it when you do something like that. It is so healthy and it's so delicious and just makes this nice, chewy, salty, sweet snack. So that was right up there on their top. But then the fruit roll-ups were too. And we love those. Any extra fruit, any fruit that's just barely past prime that we don't want to can or do anything else with, we just blend those right up and turn those into the fruit leathers. And those make for a great snack anytime. Okay. I have never done the banana. Walk me through this again. So you take the banana and you slice it up when it's fresh. Okay. And then you roll it in a little bit of peanut butter. Yeah. So I find that if you just melt the peanut butter a little bit over the stove first, it makes it a little softer, more liquid. 
and okay. that helps a lot. And so then you just dip it in there. And, you know, I got to say, it makes a mess making these things. So I'd put the kids <laughs> to it and just call it a, a fun mess because by the time you dip it in the peanut butter and then you roll the whole thing in shredded coconut and okay. you just put them on Teflon sheets on your dehydrator trays or on a little bit of parchment paper on a dehydrator tray. And you dehydrate them until the banana on the inside is leathery. And, oh, they are so good. <laughs> There's, I, I would imagine you could somehow take those and then dip them in chocolate at the end and make them even better. But Ooh. these are really good just the way they are. They're delicious. So they're a fun treat. Okay. And typically, and I know it's going to depend upon how thick you're slicing the bananas, you know, and that, but typically, because I've never dehydrated anything with peanut butter before. So typically, do you have a guesstimation of about how long it takes them to dehydrate before they're ready? Yeah, I try to do kind of thin slices with the banana and it still does take a good 12 hours in a medium dehydrator. So by medium, I'm thinking about 120, 125 degrees. So in your dehydrator. On the temperature. Um, Okay. Yeah. And you just want to make sure, you know, like anything with the dehydrating, the trick is to know when to pull it out of the dehydrator, right? (laughs) That can be the hard part of dehydrating because you don't want to over dehydrate things. Most things, some things you want to get them crispy, like the kale chips you want crispy or something you're going to powder you want crispy, but a lot of things you want them still chewy. So you have to kind of keep an eye on them and keep them as uniform in slices as possible. So they're all done at the same time. Yes. I have a time or two over dehydrated my fruit and yeah, you don't want your blueberries to be crispy. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah. It's not yet. If they ever turn out crispy though, because you're like me and you get distracted and forget all about them, blueberry powder is great in all sorts of things. (laughs) So you can always powder something you over dehydrate. (laughs) Okay. That is a really good tip. I wouldn't have thought of that with the blueberries, but yes, sometimes life gets busy and I just forget to check it or it's going into the middle of the night and I don't tend to wake up in the middle of the night to check anything when I'm dehydrating. So yes, sometimes there's that error for margin, but I love that grinding up. I never thought about that with fruit, but yeah, having a fruit powder would be really good to add to things. Oh yeah. You can add it right to kefir and make a kefir smoothie with your powder and make it really easy in the middle of winter when you don't have those frozen blueberries or something like that to go to. So it can be really useful. Okay. I love that tip and the bananas. Oh my goodness. I'm, you know what? I'm almost thinking of what if you took the banana at the beginning and rolled it in a little bit of cocoa powder and then put it in the peanut butter. Have you ever tried that? No, I haven't. That's a great idea. I like that. You could either do that or you could just mix the cocoa powder right into the peanut butter while it's cooking. Oh, that would work. That would definitely work. Yeah. Good idea. I like, I'm going to have to try that now. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Yeah. You're really making me hungry with this one. I'm excited (laughs) to try that. I think that would be delicious. I love it. Now, We talked about what my kids like, but I want to add in there that some of the foods that I like the most out of the dehydrator are the ones that are the most useful and versatile. And I think for me, the sun-dried tomatoes, and you know, of course, they're not really sun-dried because I do them in the dehydrator, not in the sun, Mm -hmm. but I like to season them with just a little bit of salt and Italian seasoning before I dehydrate them. And that's just a great way to get that versatility. I have found that when I'm making pizzas in the winter, 
a little bit of olive oil brushed on and then a layer of those just spread out. And we don't even miss the pizza sauce. So I can do away completely with the canned pizza sauce if I just have a really good supply of these dehydrated tomatoes on hand. So sometimes it's useful to kind of think outside of the box and say, now what can I use this for? But then you have those guys on hand for pastas, for anything else that you want to throw some dehydrated tomato slices into. It's really good, really handy to have. That is, I like that. I haven't done the sun-dried tomatoes with having the different herbs, the spices on them already. I think that's really fabulous. Okay. You've given me some really good dehydrating tips. I'm super excited because my tomatoes aren't on yet for this year. So I'm going to have a ton of them coming on in another couple of weeks. That's really exciting. Do you have any, I guess when you're looking at a food and deciding, okay, am I going to can it? Am I going to dehydrate it? Am I going to ferment it? When it comes to dehydrating specific, do you have anything that you're kind of like, okay, this is a con or kind of just a criteria that you even just run through in your head on which method you're going to pick to use? Absolutely. Probably the number one thing that determines that for me is how much time I have at the moment. Because like we were saying, a lot of times canning something, you put a lot of work up front. And sometimes you have that time up front that you say, hey, I can take a day and can this. But other times you say, I just, I don't have that time. I need to spend a few minutes now, get it into a dehydrator and be able to leave it alone all day. And so like you were saying with the time, that's where that dehydration can be really useful. So I'll look at that and say, do I have an overabundance? Can I get that into the dehydrator instead of you know, using it for whatever the produce is for a different method. Another thing I look at though, is there are a few foods where I feel like dehydrating really changes the flavor. And some of them aren't bad changes in flavor, but they're different. To me, I don't like dehydrated carrots personally. I feel like they take on a really perfumey flavor that I just don't like. So I generally stay away from dehydrating carrots. Green beans are another one. And they actually, I think that they taste good you know, we would call those leather britches, right? Yes. But I think they taste good, but they taste very different than what you would expect a canned green bean or a frozen green bean to taste like. So I think to me, I'm always weighing the flavor changes and, and the rehydratability, if that's even a word. Some things rehydrate really well and you can put them in a soup and nobody even knows that they were ever dehydrated. Some things, they're just never really going to come back to their same texture. And so trying to think some of those things through. Okay, that's a great criteria. Now, when it comes to the things that do dehydrate back up really well, like into soups or stews, do you kind of have some of your top ones that you think like these are the ones to do dehydrated to add to soups and stews later because they perform so well? Right. So the things that are like the top of my list for dehydrating is going to be your sweet corn in the summer. Dehydrated sweet corn. It's like taking a bite to me of sweet corn, right? In summertime, if you've dehydrated it well. So I love dehydrating the sweet corn. The tomatoes, I've already said, mushrooms. Up in Idaho where we're at, we have a lot of morel mushrooms if you can go hunt them at the right time of year. And so when you find a big stash, boy, we just dehydrate all we can because those come back just beautifully once they're rehydrated. Whether they're in a stew or in a pasta or whatever they're in, they're just absolutely delicious. Another one that is really high on my list is peppers, bell peppers and hot peppers. And those dehydrate so nicely and they come back with such a wonderful flavor 
that that is becoming really my go-to method for the peppers is just dehydrating them. Oh, good. And one note too, when it comes to mushrooms is wild mushrooms are actually not safe candidates for canning. You will find tested and approved processing times and methods for doing commercially farmed mushrooms that you can buy at the grocery store. But those wild forageables, we do morels too. Morels are my absolute favorite. I love chanterelles, lion's mane. Oh my goodness. Like, yes. Oh, good. <laughs> foraging mushrooms is like, oh, it's our favorite thing to do in the spring as a family. We just love them. But dehydrating or freezing them are really the only two methods that are approved and are going to make sure that you're safe. And a lot of times with the wild ones, there's, you know, there's just not been the testing that's been done to know what is a safe time for them. And because the wild mushrooms, you know, they all have different textures and sizes. So you can't just take the tested time for like the regular white button mushrooms and that and convert it over and think that it's going to still be safe. So I love that you said, yeah, dehydrating is a really good way to go with those. Yeah. And they keep so well. Once they're dehydrated, they just keep and they sit there. And you'll know that some years you have these great mushroom years and some years not so much. And so it's really good to have that backup on the shelf for the leaner years, you know, if you can get a bunch on there. So it's a good thing to have just sitting on the pantry shelf. Yeah, absolutely. I know whenever we have an overabundance of a harvest and even within the vegetable garden, our own vegetables and our berries, and especially with the fruit trees, I've noticed that our fruit trees kind of do an every other year, like we'll get a peak Mm -hmm. production and then the next year is not so much. So I kind of do the same thing. If I've got a lot of excess produce coming on, I try to get that preserved up in as many different ways as possible. But the following year, it might not be so great. And then you've got that backup that can take you through kind of those lean years because those do happen. They do. Yeah, especially, I agree with you, the fruit really seems to be every other year, every third year, you kind of can expect that something's not going to produce as well as it does other years. And so it's good to have that coverage there. Yeah. So let's move into our fermenting. Oh, you know what? You said your favorites when it came to dehydrating. Sorry, guys. I'm getting so excited talking about all this preserving (laughs) that I lost my train of thought. When it comes to dehydrating, well, I said I think my favorite probably is the kale chips right now, but I Mm -hmm. really love to dehydrate up a lot of dill. And I love to have the dill on hand, of course, for when I'm doing pickling things when the dill in the garden isn't on yet, so I don't have it fresh, because you can use that dehydrated dill for your pickling recipes and your fermenting. But I love to add just a little bit of dried dill to my popcorn. We make popcorn probably three or four nights a week here. It's one of our favorite (laughs) snacks. And I love adding just a little bit of dried dill with a little bit of garlic powder and salt, butter, of course, and brewer's nutritional, the nutritional yeast. There's something about that dill, just a little bit that makes it pop. So of my, that sounds good. (laughs) Yes, that's really good. And I feel like with dehydrating, this could probably be actually fell into the con category, but some herbs when they're dehydrated, some herbs really shine and they retain or almost intensify the flavor. And I true with dill, but I feel like some of the herbs don't retain their flavor. Like basil dehydrated to me isn't nearly as strong as it is when it's fresh. Have you noticed that with some herbs too? Yeah, absolutely. I would agree with you on the basil. And I've gotten to a point where I kind of go, is it even worth dehydrating basil? It can be so good in other methods. Yeah, some of them are really good. Some of them can take on a little bit of almost a 
I don't know, like a bitterness because of their strength comes out. And I think it's because those oils get so concentrated and some of them just really kind of bleach out the flavor. Yeah, I agree. So I think it's too kind of trial and error, you know, and knowing, but I, yeah, basil, I think is much better done in pesto and then freeze the pesto or putting it into your spaghetti sauces when you're canning and that type of thing. I don't really like it dehydrated. So that would probably be my dill would be my top one. But let's talk about fermenting too. And when you're choosing your fermenting and kind of your pros and cons, because we'll kind of follow that format we've done with our other two methods. But kind of the, again, when you're looking at fermenting, just like we did with dehydrating, do you have a specific criteria or kind of a way that you look at like, okay, is this one that I'm going to ferment or not? Yes, I do. And I think fermenting is kind of this, almost the new lost art that we're rediscovering. We, you know, you've heard of sauerkraut forever. That's something that's just carried through. But we're experimenting more and more with the different flavors in fermenting. And what I've got to say is there's very few things that don't taste great when they're fermented. Now, there are some things, and you were talking about the greens. I've tried all sorts of different greens, and they're just, oh, they don't end up getting eaten in my house usually when I <laughs> ferment them. But again, that's one of those things where I say, how much time do I have? Because fermenting to me is the fastest of all the preservation methods. And I absolutely love that because I can take a whole basket of tomatoes and I can have those preserved by fermenting them in three minutes, two minutes. It depends on how fast I can stick them into a jar and cover them up with water and salt. It's so fast that when you get overwhelmed, it is the go-to method. And I really, really like that. So I think, again, I look at the time that I have. How much time do I have today to deal with the produce that I have in front of me to get through? And sometimes during the season, you go, you know, I have the whole day. And so I'm going to fill the dehydrator. I'm going to fill all my fermenting vessels. And then I'm going to start canning because I have so many tomatoes or so much of this or that. But a lot of times you're busy doing life and you just don't have the kind of time input that it would take. And so that's one of those moments where I really turn to fermenting is if I just need to get it done right now in the next 10 minutes and be able to walk away. And again, so many things taste good when they ferment, but there are some cons to fermenting too. So maybe I'll just die right into that is that the flavor does change. And if you want to use fermentation as a long-term preservation method, not just fermenting to get the probiotic health benefits, but to really use it to preserve your foods for winter, you really need a place where you can put it that it's going to stay cool. It doesn't have to be the refrigerator. That's not necessary, but it does need to stay cooler than our average summer household room temperatures. It needs to be in the low 50 degrees to really stall out that fermenting so that it doesn't just keep getting more and more and more sour to the point where you don't want to eat it. Yeah. And I think for me, that's really when it comes to fermenting, I think that's probably the biggest con for me is just having that cool storage space in order to do it bulk, like, you know, preserving up a year's worth of food. Cause that's kind of our goal with most of our things is to be able to grow enough and preserve enough if the harvest is there to take us through until the next growing season without buying it from the store. So I think limited cool storage space is probably our biggest thing 
as far as a con goes with the fermenting, but you're right. It is so fast. There's no heat involved. You know, there's the time as far as when for it to reach the stage that you want it to be as far as the strength of it's, you know, being fermented. But up front, it's probably even faster than dehydrating because you're not having to slice everything so uniform and slice it. A lot of things you can just throw whole, you know, right in that jar and get them going. So I'm with you on that one for sure. But I'm really curious. I've not done fermented tomatoes. So does it take on like a pickled taste or how do you then use those fermented tomatoes? Well, this is the first year that I have done fermented tomatoes. And so I wanted to always looking for new things to ferment because I just love how simple it is and how healthy it turns out. So about two months ago, I went and found the local hothouse tomatoes, you know, all I could get about two months ago. And I went ahead and fermented these guys up just in a basic brine. But I decided to just leave them on my counter that whole two months because I wanted to see how they would age long term. Mm -hmm. And we ate those guys the other day. And I think they instantly went to the family favorite fermented food. Really? They were so flavorful and so delicious. And I've got to say, the acidity already present in the tomatoes just kind of swallows up the fermenting acidity. You didn't even notice the acidity extra. So it didn't taste pickled. It didn't taste really sour. I mean, it had a nice, pleasant tomato-y acidity, Uh but the strong flavors was just this intensified tomato flavor, like fresh tomato. Think not canned tomato, but like peak of the summer, fresh tomato flavor. And all I did is I fished those guys out of my fermenting brine. I stuck them in a blender with a little bit of raw garlic and a little bit of raw basil. Mm -hmm. And I blended them up and I poured them over warm noodles. And then we tried it again later over warm rice with veggies and sausage. And the flavor was outstanding. It was so delicious and such a great thing. But again, what I love about it the most is it probably took me less than 30 seconds per quart jar to preserve those things. And they were ready to go. And then the cooking on the other side, because I wanted to consume them raw to really save all those good enzymes and probiotics, the cooking consisted of fishing them out of the jar and sticking them in the blender and turning it on and pouring it over whatever I was eating. It was so good that way. Just absolutely delicious. Okay. I'm super intrigued. My tomatoes are going to be coming on. I'm going to try this. And just for clarification, you just left these. You did not move them. So for two months, you didn't move them into cool storage. You just left them on your counter. That's right. And right now we are in the middle of a heat spell. And so that counter was getting warm. And if you understand the basics of fermentation, putting them in cool storage just slows fermentation way down. It almost completely stops it if you get it to your mid thirties, right above freezing. And so leaving them out on the counter is just allowing them to continue fermenting and continue fermenting. So looking at what something tastes like that's been on the counter for about two months is kind of equivalent to what something would taste like after it had been in the refrigerator for maybe six months or eight months. So you really get a good feeling for it. But that also lets you know that you can keep those things on the counter and just consume them sooner than you would if you were trying to ferment them all the way until winter. Okay, gotcha. I like that. I'm going to try that. I'm going to the tomatoes, especially to know that it's, the tomatoes didn't take on that really 
pickled flavor when you really let things ferment, which I actually prefer with some foods. And for me, one of the things I like to do with fermenting is I like to ferment zucchini with garlic and dill and make a zucchini pickle out of it because zucchini, you can safely do zucchini relish, zucchini pickles, that type of thing, acidified-wise, water bath canning. But the new recommendation and new testing is you should not pressure can summer squash. Now, you can do winter squash cubed in a pressure canner, but have removed doing summer squash, zucchini, you know, patty pan, yellow, all of the summer varieties from pressure canning due to the consistency in the pressure canner getting too mushy. And if it's too mushy or it becomes too thick like a puree, even in a pressure canner, the heat can't get all the way through and kill those botulism spores. So that's just why in older canning books, you would see times and recipes for pressure canning your summer squash. It's no longer a recommendation. And I say all of that, one, just so for everybody, you know, to know those updated things and safety wise. But secondly, so I look at it and I know that zucchini, well, I'm only going to do so much pickled relish with the zucchini. And of course, I dehydrate zucchini. I spiralize it and use the zucchini as noodles. I'll dehydrate zucchini and that does pretty well. Then I'll shred and freeze a little bit of zucchini to use in baking and that. But I love to use the zucchini to do a fermented garlic dill pickle because it doesn't get very mushy. I mean, it's a little bit softer than a cucumber depending on what size you slice it. But it really takes on a lovely pickle flavor. And then we can just eat on those because we love pickles. But normally that zucchini, you know, I wouldn't have that option canning wise or even really fresh eating. I suppose you could try and put it in refrigerator pickle out of it. I haven't tried that, but I just adore doing that fermented wise. And they lasted in the fridge. I actually have a jar from last year that was at the very back that's almost gone and they're still good. And that's like a year old. Yeah. And sometimes those flavors develop even deeper as they sit in that cool storage like that. And we often talk about how to keep your cucumbers crisp in pickles when we're canning them, right? When we're canning cucumber pickles. But it's good to know that a lot of those same tips apply for zucchini that are fermented into pickles and really anything you're pickling by fermentation. And some of those tips are going to be, of course, use it as fresh as possible, but put some sort of tannin in it. So a lot of people will use a grape leaf or a black tea bag, or something to bring some tannins into them. And you can do that right with your fermented pickles as well to help keep them a little extra crisp and have that crunch to them so that when you pull them out of the fridge and they're cold, you get that good kind of fresh crunch. And that, oh, that is so good. Yes, and we have grapes. We have a grape barber and we grow grapes for table eating and then, of course, you know, preserving and all that fun. And the grape leaves work really well. But yeah, the black tea is a great way to go too. And yeah, it's funny because when I first started getting into fermenting, because I grew up with canning, but I didn't grow up with fermenting. And I was really pleased and kind of, I'm like, oh, I didn't know that would carry over. So that was kind of cool. Thanks for sharing that tip too. Yeah. Well, do you want to talk about what your favorite foods are for fermenting? If you can tell, this is one of my favorite subjects. I could talk about fermenting for a long time. <laughs> yes. And I agree with you too. I think fermenting, I feel like it's almost trendy right now, but I'm excited about that. I don't think that's a bad thing because I think a lot more people are becoming curious about fermenting. They're wanting to try it and it's kind of making a comeback. I feel like canning did that, you know, like about five or seven years ago, kind of became like a thing where a lot of people who had never done it before were getting curious. And I feel like fermenting is going down that road too. But for us, we have two in our family and the first fermented thing, and my husband actually does it. And he does it 
as soon as he runs out, he starts a new batch, and that's kimchi. So he loves to make a spicy kimchi, and that's something we pretty much always have going in our house, and that's definitely his favorite. But for me, mine is definitely a fermented cucumber garlic dill pickle. Ooh. The flavor and the crunch. I mean, my daughter and I, we will go through the jars almost as fast as they come ready. And we just adore them. So yeah, those are definitely our family's favorite two items. How about yeah. you guys? Yeah. You know, when I was asking my family this morning, they hands down said that the fermented carrot sticks are their favorite. And every one of them said that they love fermented carrot sticks better than just raw carrot stick. And I cannot get those things into any long-term storage because the kids get their watches going and the timers going to when I will let them eat them as soon as they hit a jar to ferment because they love them so much. And that's just a great flavor. It just adds a nice little garlicky saltiness to the carrots. So that's theirs. But I've got to say that one of my absolute favorites is anything that has been shredded and shredded and fermented in that way. But my personal favorite is anything that has been shredded and then fermented like a sauerkraut or a shredded garlic beet. Sometimes I do ginger and orange in shredded beets. Mm. And I absolutely love that because you can take that ferment and dump it, even the juice that comes off of it, over some rice, and you have an instant lunch. It is so delicious. It flavors everything, and it's a quick, healthy, delicious lunch that everybody loves because it's got so much flavor. So that's probably, as far as a utilitarian, one of my absolute favorites because it's just ready to go. Okay, I love the idea of the beet with the orange. That sounds really good. But curious-wise, so when you're doing it shredded, I haven't tried shredded because I feel like fermenting, I feel like I'm almost late to the fermenting part. I've only probably been doing it about, probably about four years, which when I've got decades of canning, canning is my go-to. So with the fermenting, I feel like I'm still learning like all kinds of new flavor options and different things like that. But with it shredded, is it just that, it gets done faster because it's smaller? You prefer the texture shredded or what's the shredded versus if you were just to do slices of like a beet pickle or a, you know, a fermented beet? I think because it's shredded to me, it seems like it just opens up the possibilities. It's a lot easier to have that with a rice. It's just quick and easy in terms of the eating side of it. Okay. And you know, you just scoop out however much you want. When you end up working with slices or chunks, you feel like, you know, now you have to sit down and either chop it smaller or, you know, and you could do that. All of those would be totally acceptable. But for me, I feel like that shredding just makes it quick and easy to eat with minimal mess and utensils. And that's always a plus. And I also have to say, I do like when I can shred because you can use a food processor. Right. And you're having to sit. Yeah. So if you're trying to be experienced, is of the essence, doing the shredded method with the food processor definitely is going to make things faster. Yes, definitely. <laughs> okay, well, this has been so much fun. I feel like I have got a ton of new recipes. I'm sure the listeners are too and things that I want to try. So thank you so much for coming on back to the podcast and sharing your knowledge with us today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It was such a great time to get to sit and talk about one of my absolute favorite subjects of food preservation. Yeah. And guys, if you are listening to this or on the blog post, we would love one 
in the reviews. You can let us know if you've got things that you want to know more about home food preservation and specifically fermenting. If you've got questions for Carolyn or I, pop those in the comments on the blog post or in the reviews on whatever app you're listening to this on so that we can come back and address those in future episodes. Okay. To our verse of the week. So we are moving right along. It is at the time of this recording. It is July. And I have to confess, I started at the first of the year reading my way chronologically through the Bible, starting Genesis 1. And that's where I've been primarily sharing most of the verses of the week with you here on the podcast. But I don't do it every single day. It is my goal to read my Bible and spend time with the Lord that way every single day, but it doesn't happen every single day. So at the time of this recording, we are just hitting 1 Samuel chapter 2, and the verse that I'm going to be sharing with you is actually just a few short verses, but it's more than one. So it's Samuel 2, 2 and 3, chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, and this is the Amplified Translation of the Bible. There is none holy like the Lord. There is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance go forth from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. And I feel like this is important. This verse really spoke to me. Of course, all the verses are important, right? But this one really spoke to me because I think it's so important to remember no matter what's going on in our lives, big, bad, ugly, good, wonderful, that the Lord is holy. Even when it thing, things seem like they're maybe spinning out of control or you're wondering where he's at, he is holy and he is our rock. And sometimes you can hear that by him our actions are weighed, and sometimes that can almost feel heavy upon us. But I take comfort in that too, because I think so many times in this world, and maybe more of when you have an online presence, but people will judge you. That's just a fact of life. People are going to judge us, right? That just happens. But I think it's a beautiful thing that the Lord knows our actions and our true accountability is only to him and not to other people. Because sometimes people judge our actions totally wrong because they can't see our heart. And so if that is a situation that you find yourself in, because I found myself in that situation just recently, and I thought, oh, I'm so sorry that you think that because that is so where nowhere near the truth. And so I take heart and remember the Lord knows where my heart is. Now, if my heart is in the wrong spot, he's going to be weighing that too. And that's important for me to remember because I'm not perfect and my heart's not always in the right spot. But I think it's also important for us to remember that when someone misinterprets something or they're judging us and it's just absolutely not true, that we don't always have to defend ourselves to them because sometimes that's just not going to work no matter what. But it's just important to remember that the Lord does know our heart and he's going to weigh that. And that can actually be a really beautiful freedom as well. So thank you so much to listening to this episode with me. Short heads up, I will not have a new episode for you next week. So I'm taking a week off from the podcast, but then we're going to be coming back with Avengers with some really good stuff. So thank you so much and we'll talk soon.